everybody, welcome to another episode of Cape Town, a podcast about superheroes and superhero things. I'm Tyler Huckabee. I'm Hannah Mazzell. I'm Ryan Ham. I'm Chris Youngblood. And this week on our show, we are talking about a superhero named Black Panther. We're excited to delve into the intricacies of this character who uh, very few of us have ever heard of until recently. I know that every Marvel movie now has this like huge push behind it, but this really does feel like a little bit unprecedented for not just a Marvel movie, but really for almost any movie. To like, There's a, the marketing budget and just sort of the cultural level of conversation happening around this movie right now is probably not something that I feel like I've ever been a part of in my lifetime for a movie. Oh, it's been so incredible just to watch unfold. Like in, this character just has grown to mean so much to so many people. Um, and I know there's a huge representation uh, conversation that's happening right now. That's really amazing to watch it unfold. Um, but I mean, like this movie's already like breaking records and it hasn't even come out yet. Like, they're, they're predicting a hundred and we're recording this on Thursday night. The movie comes out tonight slash like midnight tomorrow. I don't even know how they make those terminations anymore when it actually releases. So we'll be able to talk. So this will be a spoiler free podcast. Uh, we will be having a conversation later on this episode with Evan Narcisse. Evan Narcisse is a comic book writer for Marvel. He's currently working on Rise of the Black Panther uh, and he'll be giving us a few of his thoughts about the movie, which he has has seen and uh, and also about his uh, comic book run that he's working on but before we get into that let's talk a little bit about some comic book news hannah what do you got you you would go to me first thank you i'm gonna i did because you told me what it was gonna be and i i've already got my take i'm just on gonna it. set a very serious self-respecting tone um for today's episode <laughs> so i feel like my news is going to um bring into question about you know actually what is news because it's it's silly so today i was you know just kind of perusing the internet trying to find something interesting to talk about that wasn't like a trailer basically what you would find on like the imdb news um thread there so the first thing i found was a story about a meeting that took place when Marvel and Sony were in conversations about making the Spider-Man movie. You know, I'm not really sure the intricacies Mm -hmm. of what happened there, but apparently Amy Pascal threw a sandwich at Kevin Feige during the meeting. And that was basically the title of the article. Sony executive throws sandwich at Kevin Feige. And I thought, that's good stuff. I read the article. (laughs) It it turned out to be not very interesting, but it happened apparently. um, But there was a sandwich thrown. That part is true. (laughs) Can we confirm? Um, I, Our roving I entertainment uh, yeah, report. Like, <laughs> certain, you know, I'm not sure. We, we can't call them reputable websites, um, but certain websites have reported this is accurate. We'll see. But I found it on the internet. Again, that is not really a very good standard for what is truthful or not, but it was there. <laughs> <laughs> I bought um, it. Another very serious thing that I came across uh, was an article on sci-fi wire which i'm pretty sure that's that's just a part of wired magazine i think it's just their sci-fi publication so apparently there's a movement to have marvel men stop waxing their chests i have not thought about this before i didn't see as much of an issue but it's just maybe a detail that i've overlooked but i guess there are a group of viewers out there who are bothered by it i'm not really sure i want to speak into this issue too much. <laughs> well, you brought it up. This is a safe zone. You're, there's no bad takes here. I just think it's interesting that it's a newsworthy co- topic. Um, 
but it's there. When we say movement, do we mean like there's one person who's tweeting about this? I think she's talking about a Reddit post. No, no, this is something on Sci-Fi Wire, and then it link, and then this article links to other things. Um, there's other things out there other than this this one single article I've read. So you know, in the spirit of talking about just totally uh, shallow comic related news, here we are. All right. Anyone else has something you want to talk about today? <laughs> yeah, no, you got to commit. <laughs> you have to commit to your news bit now. Now we're in it. Now we have to talk yeah, about whether or not guys should shave their chest. And well, more. okay. And this, and there, I guess there, there was one picture here that has a picture of Mike Coulter who played Luke Cage and he has chest hair. So I guess it's not everyone in particular, but uh, some of the more prominent actors, Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth. They are chest hairless, but you know, some people are naturally without chest hair. That's so. true. That's yep. true. Yeah. We have a club. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what if uh, the effect of this movement is for Thanos to have just like a thick, bushy <laughs> layer of chest hair? Because <laughs> they could CGI it in. It'd be great. <laughs> I don't know if the movement is that strong. CGI is, uh, edits are pretty expensive. Well, it wasn't, but now we're putting it on Cape Town and it's, gonna, it's reaching a whole new crowd of, of like very important fans out there who could turn this into a real like Avenger full on Avengers movement. Now I, when I think about Marvel men, the only one who I can think of who had sort of a conspicuously shaven chest is Chris Evans in the first Captain America movie. Yeah. Well, I have found when he pops out of that, when he pops out of the the machine, he's, he's bright and shiny. (laughs) He's all oiled up. See, I was going to say Chris Hemsworth Hemsworth during the cave scene. Oh yeah. The cave scene. (laughs) How do we keep going back to the worst moment (laughs) in any Marvel movie? Yeah. I'm not even going to touch that. You're baiting me. I know it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. All right. We're good. We're good. (laughs) The movement is afoot. We'll see what we get in the inbox for next week. Ryan, what news are you bringing? I, even though Hannah already threw shade at them, uh, was going to talk about some of the new trailers that have been released since the last time we did a podcast. Um, we've had There's a few a big ones. Yeah. Um, we obviously had um, all the Super Bowl ones, um, which, you know, there was an Infinity War trailer um, that was pretty big. And showed some cool stuff and made me feel a lot of things and be really excited. Um, and then there was also a Deadpool 2 one, which as much as I want to hate Deadpool because it is like vintage frat boy comedy. How dare you? Uh, I very much love it and realize that I am a frat boy inside. And it's been there all along. So I, yeah, I watched the Deadpool trailer or Deadpool 2 trailer, excuse me, uh, very much prepared to sort of roll my eyes and. Uh, you know, be too cool for it. And then instead I was laughing a lot and I uh, can't wait to see it. Yeah. It looks like they're actually going to be able to pull the sequel off. Like, yeah, I think, having, I think having cable, a part of the movie is just going to like help them keep it fresh and like hopefully, hopefully just like not rely on too many callbacks. Um, yeah. The first film. Like, I feel like they're really going to do well with this. I'm kind of with you, Ryan, in that the first one I didn't really want to like. And I, I don't think I liked it as much as everybody else did. I feel like when movie superhero movies lose their accessibility to children, they lose something kind of important about their roots and their mythos. And Deadpool 1, at least, and I assume Deadpool 2, is definitely not for the kids. But I, and it's despite how much it leaned into this sort of uh, Seth MacFarlane brand of, of self-referential humor, 
I did laugh at it pretty hard and the and the trailer won me over in spite of myself. So I feel like it might be one of those things where I like it, even if I have some principles against it in general. But I like Ryan Reynolds. I feel like the, the cast is shaping up really well. Um, Zazie Beats as Domino is a great pick. I've loved her work on Atlanta. So I would put this one in the cautiously optimistic camp. Yeah, and Terry Crews, which no. Oh, I forgot knew. about Terry. That was like a they totally yeah. kept the cast in the bag until they showed Terry Crews off in the trailer. We don't even know who he's going to be. Yeah, it's great. So um, I'm in for that. And then they also showed, and I'm curious to hear what you guys think about this. Um, they showed the trailer for Jessica Jones season two. Yes. Which uh, so far, Jessica Jones has been my favorite of the Marvel Netflix series, um, which admittedly started out very strong and have lost some luster. So. I will watch this because season one was my favorite one, but I'm a little nervous about apparently they feel the need to like do an origin story for her. Um, So yeah, I'm curious. What do you guys think about that? I haven't watched the trailer yet. So, but I loved the first season, but I just like kind of completely missed. Wow, Chris, some of us tried to prepare. (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) It's a trailer, Chris. Millions of people watch them. It's not hard. We do it for for podcasts. So was the whole, (laughs) they're trying to get you to watch it. Was the whole season looking like it was going to be an origin story basically, or, or, or you think it's just going to be a component of season two? I think it'll just be a component, but it like, it made it look like, you know, it showed the car crash with her parents and she was like investigating and, um, you know, there were flashbacks to like the accident Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Well, season one had a lot of flashbacks. So it's kind of staying on par with that. Yeah, that's, that's, it did, but I did like how the first one, how really uh, one of the the strengths of uh, even the worst of the Netflix shows has been that they didn't concern themselves too much with how any of the any of the characters came to be. They just kind of like, yeah, there's a there's a guy. He's blind. He has powers. Let's not worry about it too much. And I think that has really helped their forward momentum with Jessica Jones in particular. I think it really helped her show. I think that they they earned a lot of faith with me from their first season. Because it yeah. was just so good. The trailer didn't dazzle me, I suppose, but TV sh- trailers for TV shows just so rarely are actually all that good. Yeah. I was excited that it seems to tease that Hellcat's going to be in it. Yeah, um, that's officially. true. Um, and I'll be super curious to see who the villain is. Because, I mean, um, David Tennant's Purple Man was so good in the in season one. So. And he is signed to the show for season two. Yeah. I wonder how in some capacity, that. whether that'll be flashback or not. I really hope and I worry that, uh, but I really hope that it's not like Jessica sees visions and feels guilty about killing Kilgrave because that mm. could also be really boring. Yeah, let's, let's move forward in the story. I agree. I don't want it to be too much flashbacks, yeah. um, too, too many flashbacks and then uh, kind of rehashing the same old stuff because it seemed like a lot of season one was also, was already her kind of struggling with herself, obviously. I mean, so much self-loathing. Um, yeah. So I don't know if I really want to see another season of that. <laughs> Speaking of self-loathing, there was one more superhero trailer that came out this week. Did we all catch that Venom trailer with Tom Hardy? I mm-hmm. have not seen it. Mm-hmm. So tell me. I wasn't. Well, it's Tom Hardy. I couldn't tell you anything about it. <laughs> I honestly, I can't wrap my hand what this movie is going to be about without Tom Holland's Spider-Man, without Spider-Man slash Peter Parker. Like, Venom as an alien symbiote, like at its core is, has a fascination with Peter Parker uh, because he was its first host. So if you remove that piece, like what is Venom's motivation? Like, so I'm, I am really curious how, where they actually go with this, uh, with this film. 
I completely agree. I think, and I think that's why a lot of people were really skeptical about the Venom movie because they just didn't feel it. Having a Venom movie without Spider-Man, even in the world, like even in the in the existence, just felt like such a weird move. And the trailer could have brought a lot of people over. Like it could have won me over. I was prepared to be into it. I was not into this trailer. And I think some, Ryan, I think you said before we started recording, the trailer just could have been for anything. There was nothing about any sort of symbiote or venom. It was just Tom Hardy talking over some really bland, like it looked like B-roll of shots that could have gone into your standard Jason Bourne movie or Mission Impossible or or like Ryan said, Lock 2. <laughs> time. It looked yeah. like one of those things where a fan just pulls a bunch of shots of Tom Hardy from different movies <laughs> and like, this could be what the Venom movie would be like if they cast. It was really boring. Yeah. But I will say like, I mean, the people behind it are really yeah, good. Like it's the, you know, it's, it's the director of Zombieland, which I like a lot. Um, you know, he hasn't necessarily made like all like a ton of stuff that I've loved since then. But, uh, you know, I don't think anyone was uh, too excited about. Well, even the cast, like the, Michelle Williams. Yeah, the cast, yeah. Med, you know, Woody Harrelson, Jenny Slate. Like, that's yeah. that's a good cast. And I like Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy picks some weird movies sometimes, but I gen- I am always interested to see what he does with it. The movie could still be good. This just wasn't the trailer they needed to really get people excited about it. As I was diving into anything related to this, uh, I found an article about... Um, the potential for Woody Harrelson to actually be playing Cletus Cassidy as Carnage in this, uh, which originally it was rumored that Riz Ahmed from um, the night of the night of. Yeah. The night of the night. I like him. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's super great. And uh, which like, it could have been an interesting take on Cletus Cassidy slash Carnage. Now the rumor is Woody Harrelson is going to do it. So yeah, like the whole film just feels disjointed at the moment without that key piece of uh, Spider-Man. So, <laughs> And there are still some like fan rumors online that they're secretly making Tom Holland rather a part of this movie. I guess it's possible. I don't really see that being the case. I, I feel like they'd really want to trumpet that to get some faith back in the movie, but I guess we'll see what happens. It might be good. I'm just not super interested in it as it stands right now, especially with something like Black Panther in the works, which has, as we already said, just had me on board from trailer number one or really from, yeah. since they started talking, making announcements about the cast and crew and all of that. Well, I will say like, before we jump into all Black Panther stuff is like, I watched the trailer and it was playing out loud. And uh, my wife was like, I know that there was a lot of backlash with that, but like as someone who knows nothing about Venom and who also just like really hates Tom Hardy, I found this trailer very intriguing. So, <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Like, she hates Tom Hardy? She hates Tom Hardy. Nobody hates Tom Hardy. I love that doesn't Tom, make any sense. It, we are a house divided. <laughs> I could watch <laughs> Tom tearing Hardy. Tearing your marriage apart? Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I love Tom Hardy. So, yeah. like it, okay. I was like trying to explain like, yeah, you need Peter Parker, like, come on, like, you maybe know if this. you go into it totally cold, it's a better trailer. Like, if you have no expectations for what a Venom movie would be like, it's a more interesting trailer. I guess that's possible. Yeah, and I think it's I, we're talking about a vast majority. Like the the people who are being loud about it are the people who actually like who know like the history of it. And that's if we're thinking about the percent percentage of people out there, like it's very small. So this might actually have a very large uh, like general audience appeal. 
All right. All right. I'm willing. Like I said, I'm trying to stay on the fence. I don't want to be one of those awful comic book fans who's like, this isn't what I had in mind for a movie. So it's terrible. I'm <laughs> trying to stay as open-minded about well, it as I can. I, I think that based upon what you guys said, I, I didn't watch the trailer, but it seems like they're purposely trying to kind of shroud it in mystery at this point. Like they're not really giving a lot away. Even, even on IMDb, there's no plot. That's true. Um, like not even like a basic two sentence plot. There's nothing. So, um, and then, you know, it comes out this year. I feel like normally there's, there's some kind of tease, but um, October, November is that right? October, October, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, like okay, yeah. The plot just says the plot is an uh, unknown. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they don't know yet. Maybe they're still filming it, or just kind of figuring. It's kind of like an improv everywhere situation. <laughs> but we do know that Tom Hardy is at least going to be in a cat scan. <laughs> That's true. Screaming at the yeah. screaming at the camera. <laughs> yeah. And, to, and, the, and the Tom Hardy has a questionable New York City accent. Those are the two that are certain. That's another way of thinking it's a Tom Hardy movie, though. I kept wake, waiting for him to, like, you know, be crossing a street and be like, hey, I'm walking here! Or something like that. So I think that will wrap. Oh, Chris, you, did you have any news you wanted to nope. share? I wanted to talk about Venom. So you wanted, that was, that was it. it. Okay, we got to it then. All right. Then, that being the case, let's turn our attention to Black Panther. We already covered Black Panther back when he was introduced in Civil War back in the It's a Bird, It's a Planet, It's a Podcast days. I'm not sure. The only thing that's happened between since then is a movie that's coming out. We were talking a little bit about some of the most recent runs and comics just on our text thread. Uh, but didn't you guys delve into any new reading? Yeah. So last time um, when we did the podcast before on Black Panther... I'd read some of the priests run and I'd read some of the Hudland run. Cause if, if memory serves like uh Ta-Nehisi Coates had just started on black Panther and because I'm super cheap, I did not want to buy it because I knew it would be on Marvel unlimited. Um, so now his run is on Marvel unlimited. So I finally read that and it is great. So a little bit of history just to give us a, a map for Black Panther in Marvel Comics. Black Panther was uh, Marvel's first, the first mainstream black superhero in comic books. Uh, I believe he was introduced in 1966, I want to say, in an issue of Fantastic Four, in which he really beats Fantastic Four's ass. And he would also introduce the world of Wakanda, which at the time was a very surprising move for Marvel. Jack Kirby, who was the person who drew uh, everything in Marvel's early days, had wanted to introduce a black character for quite a while. Marvel's brass had told him no. He had the idea for a character who was a king of an African country called the Cold Tiger, I think he wanted to name him. And uh, and that got reworked, thankfully, mercifully, into the Black Panther. He originally had a costume that showed off a little more of his face and his skin. Marvel a bit got nervous about that and rumoredly, rumoredly, we should say, acts to that, which is why he uh, still now wears a costume that covers all of his body because they were very scared in the 60s about releasing a superhero who was black into their universe. It went over very, very well. Uh, released his appearance, first appearance coincided with sort of the rise of the Black Panther Party at the time, uh, which was obviously even more politically fraught then than it is now. But the character became was a big success and eventually got his own ongoing series that was called sort of questionably, uh, what is it, Jungle Adventures? Is that right? Jungle, yeah, I think so. Jungle, jungle action series. Jungle action series. That's yeah. right. And uh, it never did huge numbers, but it was considered. Uh, it, it's still considered Marvel's first actual graphic novel. 
because it was a, a sort of serialized run of storytelling that Marvel really hadn't experimented in before. And uh, the character has continued to thrive, became an Avenger, sort of existed on the sidelines for a long time until Christopher Priest's run in the, in the late 90s catapulted him into being a much larger, much more complex and, and interesting character. And now he's the sort of a book written by ta Coates. MacArthur, genius grant winner ta Coates is writing a comic <laughs> book. It's so wild. still kind of crazy <laughs> for me to say that out loud. It's wild. Ryan, you've delved into Coates a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what's been cool is that, like, as I've been reading, you know, I, I'm obviously familiar mostly with Colts, Coates through some of his writing for The Atlantic um, and then some of his uh, essay collections. And just uh, reading how that filter comes through with comics, it's really interesting because it's, you know, normally, you know, this is obviously a generalization, but normally when someone tackles a new comic or it's like a new writer who gets to play in a playground for the first time, they sort of have the idea for the first arc and it wraps up and I don't know, like six issues or so. And like, you know, it makes a nice tidy trade paperback. Everyone's happy They make a lot of money. It was interesting with this one because it's like, you know, I got to the end of issue six and I'm like, Oh, we're not even like close to this because he's essentially building like the entire history of like how, uh, like how Wakanda works and what the tensions are for a Royal family in Wakanda. And it was just, it was interesting to see how those social tensions that he pulls through in his nonfiction magazine and book writing also come into play in a comic book world. And I just thought that was really interesting that like, you know, even though it's obviously a different medium, that's still the world that he's thinking about and the world that is creating, which I actually really appreciate because that doesn't happen a lot of times um, in comics where you're sort of seeing uh, someone wrestling with what it means to be a superhero. What in like, and I think what it comes down to, at least in my mind, and I would be curious to see what you guys uh, think as well. You know, it really is a study in what power means and how to properly wield power. And I feel like that's so much of what Coates writing is in essay form. And so for him to suddenly be able to play with that idea in a fictional realm, I think is really interesting. Coates is is definitely very interested in all of his writing and the idea of power and and whether or not it's possible for good people to wield power in a just way or, or how long can you wield power before it corrupts you and what can good people do with power to try to save themselves from being corrupted by it. Uh, that's a question that Coates has been criticized outside of his comic book writing for having a pessimistic view of it. I would say in his comic book writing, he's a little more optimistic, uh, which is sort of the nature of the genre because T'Challa and the rest of the Royal family and Wakanda are interested in trying to find a way to diffuse the power they have as royalty to the rest of the people of Wakanda. And Coates is, is arguing over a long and pretty complicated tale for a comic book for interventionist politics and for ways to become less, more populist in a positive way. I know populism has gotten sort of a a negative connotation over the past few years in this country, but in Wakanda, it's actually working out quite well for them, which is why I'm applying for a student visa. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's interesting to see what a superhero looks like yes. for ta Coates. Cause like you said, he's often accused of being pessimistic, a charge, which like, I don't necessarily disagree with all the time. I mean, you know, I'm a white dude sitting in a basement right now, so I'm not about to accuse him or tell him that he needs to be more optimistic. I think it mostly shows when he has conversations with people who have like different outlooks on life. Like I think it's really interesting whenever he speaks with pastors 
and they agree on almost every single issue, pastors or priests or religious figures, and they agree on almost every single issue, but the pastor is like, I'm optimistic because I believe that everything's going to be okay. And Coates is like, I'm an atheist, so I don't. Um, and I think, I always feel like that's that thin line and margin. And I think one of the things that, you know, we've talked about both, you know, off offline as well as on the podcast is how we think that in general, superhero comics are at their best when they sort of present this optimistic view of what humanity or America or, you know, fill in the blank could be if it sort of allowed it best, its best self to flourish. You know, I feel like a lot of what Coates is writing in the Atlantic or in his essay collections are he's, you know, he's grappling essentially with a mantle of slavery and white supremacy and, you know, constant uh, racial degradation of African-Americans since the founding of the United States and when he's writing a comic book, he doesn't have to grapple with that. And, you know, that's what can make it more optimistic, I think. There's a been a very small movement that I don't want to give too much attention to, but it's worth bringing up in this context on the internet, a horrible internet called Comic Book Gate or Comics Gate, which is a collection of people who think that there's been a, a social justice warrior takeover of comic book creation. They want to get politics, identity politics in particular, out of comic books and return comics to a time when a fictional time when they weren't involved in these things. One of the things that we try to do on this show is, is show that, 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 A, there was no such time, that these creations have always been a part of the culture they're involved in. And B, like you said, Ryan, I think that comics are better when they are grappling with these real issues because they can be used as, as metaphors for more important things. And we can use them as sort of myths and storytelling devices to explore areas that we wouldn't know how to without them. So I hope this movement dies quickly. I'm glad to see that a lot of creators are speaking out against it. They're circulating, Comicsgate or whatever is circulating a list on Reddit. I'm Comicsgate, this could be one 15-year-old kid. I don't know how big the movement is, but he's got a list of like journalists and podcasts and create artists and creators who they think are ruining comics because they involve too much politics in it. Hopefully we oh, will man, be included. Hopefully we can get on the list. Hopefully we can, yeah, yeah it's a goal. It's a goal. We'll see what happens. This could get us there. I was going to say, I love, I love that the goal of this movement is essentially Batman Nightfall, like the worst <laughs> comic book series ever. And it's like, let's do more of that. <laughs> In addition to Ta-Nehisi Coates' Black Panther, there's another Black Panther series going on right now. It's called Rise of the Black Panther. It's sort of a uh, what's, what's coming to be called the year one story in the comic book world, which is taking a deep dive into the origins of the Black Panther, how he came to be. That story is being written by Evan Narcisse. We got a chance to talk to Evan Narcisse earlier this week uh, about the that story, about the movie, and really about some of his thoughts about politics and comics. Here's our conversation with Evan. Thanks for making time to talk to me. No problem. How are you doing? I'd imagine you're pretty busy these days. I'm very busy. You know, Is day it? blogging, night work, night writing, all that stuff. <laughs> Is it a little busier than you thought? You'd be like the expectation of working on a on a project this size to the reality. Is it a pretty big leap between those two? Yeah, um, I didn't lay out everything um, in terms of the actual breakdown of issues and pages. I didn't do that beforehand. Yeah, um, because I feel like I knew where I was going, and I wanted the journey and the discovery and the improvisation to be part of. The experience, if that makes any sense. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of, could I have probably been more efficient? Yeah, but it feels like 
I really enjoy those eureka moments when I'm like, hey, I just figured out how I'm going to get from point A to point B, um, like in the plot mechanics or whatever. Uh-huh. Like that stuff is has been really satisfying. And I'll think, I don't know if I would feel that way if I had like beaten it all out beforehand. What do you think is the biggest like misconception that somebody ha- who's outside the industry who just reads comics, what's the biggest misconception they have about the creative process that you have to go through when you're writing one of these? That everybody does it the same way hmm. or um, that you're ever really happy with what you, <laughs> what, what you wind up shipping, you know? <laughs> Because you feel like it could always have been just a little bit better yeah. or you're yeah, looking yeah, yeah. at it, you read it when it actually comes out and you're like, oh, I wish I had done it like this instead yeah. of like this. And I've got, you know, I've got two issues drawn yeah. um, so far and I'm ha- I'm very happy with the work, but I feel like, oh, you could have done this better or maybe, you know, there's always, always something, you know, and it's the worst kind of like, I'm a creator cliche in the world, but. It, it, it is like a very true one. Like, you know, I yeah. look at issue one, I'm like, okay, fine. You could have done this or that better. Yeah. Um, and even need another issue two's lock. I feel like, all right. So it's a weird truism that absolutely is 100% correct. that I've heard, you know, other writers tell me before when I've been the one interviewing, um, it's 100% true. From the time that you first even were brought on board with doing something like Black Panther, to now, even in that, it's a pretty short amount of time, but the the level of hype, the spotlight around the character is just, it's at a level that very few superheroes ever at all reach, and now it's something that you're directly involved in. Is that a pressure that you're feeling in a way you didn't really expect? Yes, but I also have to compartmentalize that, you know? Sure. Like, I don't know if you've read what I've written or, or said elsewhere, but like, uh, this is my favorite comic book character. Like, I've always been such a child fan. Like, I've I've written for the guy when nobody else was, even through, you know, uh, moments or tenures, creative tenures where I wasn't exactly feeling it. Um, <laughs> so to be like the guy who's like contributing to that long thread of history is, is really kind of wild. Like, you know, probably yeah. feels like, well, you don't want to fuck it up for anybody else. Right. You don't want to, <laughs> um, you don't want to be the one who like says, all right, I'm done with this character because Marvel can't do anything with it because it's something that Evan Narciss wrote. Like, I don't want to be that responsible for that. That said, you know, I do want to, my primary goal, I want readers to feel the same way I do about the child. Like he's an interesting, you know, layered character that, uh, has a intriguing tension at like the core of his construction. I want readers to feel that. And if they don't, um, then I fucked up. <laughs> what do you think it was about the character that drew you to him even before you were writing the comic or even when the comic was at its lower creative points? You know, T'Challa is a character that's like at the crossroads of history, right? Like yeah. he's, a, he's, he stands at the intersection between like tradition and modernity, right? Like he's got a long lineage of like badass predecessors, um, that it kept Wakanda, uh, unconquered, uncolonized, have made it thrive in a way like no other place in the Marvel Universe. Uh, however, because of the point in time that he inherits the mantle, he has to break with that tradition a little bit. And, you know, the notional kind of impetus for this series is T'Chaka dies, and T'Challa, even from his youngest as a kid, 
his youngest days as a kid realizes, okay, he's aware of the outside world in a way that no other prince or Wakandan um, has been before because it killed his dad. Yeah. Um, so he realizes, okay, you know, how do I start to create a response to this reality um, that smacked me in my face? And, and his, his answer is to break with the same tradition that he's trying to uphold. So it's, it's like, okay, we can't be isolationists anymore. It makes you a target. But we still have to be secretive and guarded um, about who we are, what we can do. We have to be, you know, as watchful as we have been, if not more so. Yeah. So I feel like it would not have been true to the character. And granted, these decisions were made way before I was born. But it would not have been true to the character to have him be like, all right, my dad died, but we're gonna, and we're going to keep on doing things the same way. Mm-hmm. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. So, yeah, like, I feel like that's the thing that attracted me to him. Like, he's, you know, I'm the child of immigrants, and I've had angst in my own life. Well, okay, am I being patient as I could be? Mm-hmm. I don't live there. My command of our language is not great. You know, I can't cook any of the foods I grew up eating, but I still am proud to be Haitian. And what I've had to do is think about the things that I am proud about being Haitian and, and how I can live those and pass those on to my own kid. And T'Challa very much has the same kind of existential question. It's like, okay, um, I'm the king of this amazing country, but I feel like we shouldn't be separating ourselves from the rest of the world. We can be helping the rest of the world, even as my subjects and constituents don't necessarily hold those same beliefs. It's hard to ignore, obviously, some of the political uh, ramifications of what you're writing about. I've intentionally not really dipped my toe into something on Twitter called Comicscape that's happening, which is advocating yeah. for less le- less politics in comics. And I don't, I'm aware of it. I don't want to uh, dignify it or anything with too much conversation, but it does seem like with a character like T'Challa, more than most characters, politics is inherent. You can't not write a non-political Black Panther no, story. I mean, even if you go back to the the first Stanley Jack Kirby story in Fantastic Four number 52 that came out in 1966. Um, let's argue that they may have done it in 1965. Um, we don't know exactly when, but like that's mid sixties, right? Like, yeah. you know, I think that was a moment where comics purposefully did not invoke the turmoil and the change that the creators were uh, surrounded by. Right. Mm -hmm. So even if we take it like they're being objectively naive or opaque to what's going on in in the real world, even if you take capture factor that stuff in, you still can't have that origin story for the child without talking about colonialism. Right. You can't. Right. Like claw shows up, but he wants to uh, uh, steal vibranium, own vibranium, take over the country that's colonialism. You know, you may not call it by that name, but that's what it is. So as a result, you know, yeah, T'Challa, politics has always been there, you know, and it's been specifically the politics of white hegemony and, and white supremacy. Again, it wasn't called that for a long, 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 long time. Yeah. But that's what, but that's what it is. When you finally get to like McGregor in the 70s, then it's like, well, okay, we're starting to see Wakandans as xenophobes um, resistant to change. And again, understandably so, given the circumstances of colonialism and what's done on the rest of the uh, rest of the continent. Um, so that, that starts with that idea sort of kind of starts with McGregor. And then, you know, by the time priest comes along in 1998, like he pretty much makes it 
uh, a canonical understanding of the character and the country like that, you know, our borders are the way they are because we know we have something that the outside world wants. More interestingly, I should say from a different angle, you know, there have been times when the character was explicitly used to political ends. Like there's a Roy Thomas story from Fantastic Four where, um, you know, T'Challa's in jail in, in an analog yeah, yeah. for uh, South Africa. And then again, in 1988, Peter B. Gillis story drawn by Dennis um, Cohen, where like the Panthers fighting um, superheroes from the neighboring country of Azania, which is again another South Africa analog, and those super the superhero team is named the Supremacists. So you know they weren't being subtle about it, <laughs> and that story is really interesting because it happens before a lot of what we now assume is canon um, had kind of like uh, ossified into the, into its current state. So like the Panther God was not named Bast and wasn't like a, a humanoid feline woman character. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Panther God took away T'Challa's powers because it says, hey, you're not doing enough to stop this apartheid situation in Azania. Um, and I'm going to give these Panther uh, uh, abilities to uh, somebody else who winds up murdering people in the country. And then T'Challa got blamed, et cetera, et cetera. But like, you know, that's that's the character being used for specific political messaging throughout the whole swath of this character's publishing history. It's been political. So, yeah, that stuff doesn't really makes sense when you apply it to T'Challa. But, you know, T'Challa isn't necessarily all that different from other characters who these complaints are being lodged against. He's not that different than Captain America, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Captain America was a character created to, to, to punch Hitler and to rally wartime uh, morale in a certain way. You know, I, I feel like, if I sound like a little fatigued or annoyed, I feel like a lot of this stuff is self-evident with the superhero idea, right? Like these are aspirational characters who are meant to serve specific ends in terms of like cultural messaging and to act like that's not always been the case is I think wrongheaded. Do you think that, or to your knowledge anyway, has there ever been any, we'll say skittishness at Marvel about the name Black Panther and it, uh, and obviously like, I think if my history is right, it predated the political party, but then obviously they had a very similar and simultaneous rise. It's interesting that Marvel never uh, tried to bury the character, but in some ways, lately at least, has even sort of acknowledged and maybe at some points even embraced the connotations. Uh, it's funny you bring that up because um, they did try to do this weird uh, contortion around the Black Panther Party stuff. Um, like you, I don't have the dates in front of me, so I can't say whether um, T'Challa predates the Black Panther Party. I don't think he does, but I, again, oh, I don't really? have the dates. I could be wrong. I don't have the dates in front of me, so let's not even go there. That's all right. But what I do know is um, somewhere. I want to say in the late 60s, early 70s, that black that Fantastic Four story that I mentioned, um, he's like, yeah, I'm calling myself the Black the Black Leopard now. Oh, and, that's and, right. And, I'd forgotten about that. Right. And and the thing and Human Torch are like, what? <laughs> he's like, yeah, you know, there's stuff going on back in your in your in your country that you know I feel like it's best to keep my name out of it. So I changed my name. It didn't stick. Thank God, because yeah. Black Panther is such a better name than black leopard yeah but what's also hilarious about that is you're um undercutting your own fiction right yeah. and again the sense of what we call continuity now is different than it was then um it was less of consideration um 
But, you know, on one hand, you're telling us, you've told us this character is the latest Black Panther in a series of Black Panthers. I think that much had been already established in the canon. Um, sure. And then you say, but you know what? I'm going <laughs> to screw all that legacy stuff because these guys, these new, new jacks in the United States are causing trouble <laughs> for the white power structure. Yeah. So let's not, let's change my name. It's like, huh? <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, thankfully there hasn't been very much of that. Um, you know, to answer the second part of your question, I know there was at least one project where um, the Black Panther's name was linked uh, explicitly to the Black Panther Party in the United States. Two projects, now that I think about it. I think in the Hudlin run, the the series that started in 2005, there was some mention made of uh, Wakanda funding or helping out the Black Panthers in a very um, a surrogatist way, mm-hmm. like in a, in a secret way. Hudlin also did a storyline where um, T'Challa and Storm went to a Skrull planet uh, where the Skrulls were um, taking on roles from human history, like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. So mm-hmm. he had like he had T'Challa meet uh, like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. Um, and in there was a project called Ruins that was written by Warren Ellis. I forget who drew it, but uh, it was like a fully painted project in the vein of Marvels. And it was kind of like a, a broken mirror version of Marvels where uh, instead of all the wonder and kind of awe of, of the Marvel age of heroes, it was like, oh man, everything's fucked up. It's Warren Ellis, so of course. Yeah. But he specifically had, um, I, I want to say the character's name was T'Challa de Wakandas, um, T'Challa de Wakandas, uh, like being jailed for bombings along with oh. Bobby and Huey B. Newton of the Black Panther Party. So it was like, yeah, you know, he, he rolled with all those guys. So, you know, they had it both ways. They ran away from it. They run uh-huh. into it. What I'm writing is not anything like that. But, you know, it, I do want it to invoke the same kind of sense of, like, real politic um, that Priest's run did and um, even a little bit that uh, Tanahasi's run has. And Hudlin did that, too. You know, I mean, the, the character is a king. It's a major differentiating element um, when you compare him to uh, most other superhero characters. So yeah. uh, to not, like, access that energy feels um, wrongheaded to me. And that's what I wanted to ask, is, is you've talked today with me and in other interviews uh, about the evolution of the character through McGregor, through Priest, through Hudlin, and and now what Ta-Nehisi Coates has done. Do you have an idea about the sort of marker or legacy that you want to leave on the character, the way you want to help shape the ongoing narrative? You know, it's funny. So I'm right. You know, the weird thing about writing uh, what's essentially um, a prequel or you know a year one story. Right. Um, what's weird about that is. It allows me to like re-examine the character's past um, and figure out like where I can build in that in that part of his fictional history. So the thing I've been saying is that like for me, T'Chaka's death is like you know the assassination of like Martin Luther King or or John F. Kennedy. You know, mm-hmm. like it's something that leaves a scar in the national psyche. So going from that, it's like okay, well, we know how T'Challa reacted. Mostly, you know, he became a king and became a superhero. He decided to carry on his father's legacy. Mm-hmm. But what about Cyan, you know, who's yeah. the uncle character, the brother to Chichaka um, that uh, Hudlin introduced? Like, your brother was there and he's dead and then you became regent. Like, how does that affect you psychologically? 
um, and other characters. I, I wanted to add layers to um, the construction of the characters um, that we've seen so far. Reimagine some characters coming up uh, from the Kirby run that I don't want to spoil, but like, I'm like, yeah. oh, wait, what would this character be like with this kind of, you know, latter-day understanding of psychology and character construction and continuity? Like, what would what would this character be like in that moment? I'm, I'm not really giving you an answer. Um, <laughs> so let, me, let me take a step back. Um, I've been saying that I just want people to love T'Challa and realize the complexity of the mythos, which is not necessarily adding anything. That's, that's compounding uh, something that's already part of the character. You know, I want, one of the things I want to do with issue one was um, show like the familial kind of love that we may not have necessarily seen around this character. Mm-hmm. Um, T'Chaka and Inyami. Um, I really want to flesh out Inyami as a character because she was only really mentioned as a name on a page. You know, we, she's been drawn on panel like only a few times. Um, um, we didn't really have a sense of who she is or what she did before she died in childbirth. So that's one concrete thing. The other concrete thing is I want to show T'Chaka um, just a little bit um, in his glory days. Like, you know, we've never seen him as uh, in his prime. You know, we've right. seen him as a ghost. We've seen him die. Um, but we've never seen him like be like the young in his prime warrior king that we knew him to be. Um, only glimpses of that. So I want to give some more time to that. Um, and I want to show like Ramonda um, and him falling in love or at least why she stayed. You know, and the other thing is too, I want to, if I can land on one ultimately concrete thing, it's I want to show T'Challa finding his place in the world while he's changing Wakanda's place in the world. You know, and that's a tricky thing because something else I've been saying a lot is, you know, again, talking about like the, creative impetus for this story. We first meet Wakanda and is veiled in secrecy. Uh, No one knows how to get there. Uh, T'Challa basically has to ferry people there um, in the first couple of appearances. Um, There's a Tales of Suspense crossover of Captain America where he basically has to do the same thing he did with the Fantastic Four, send the plane um, (laughs) um, and uh, that brings people there. But then in Marvel time, a few years later, the Wakanda design group is being traded on the New York stock exchange. They're a known entity, right? Yeah. Like, you know, how to, you, they don't necessarily welcome people in, but they are known as an operator on the world stage. So I want to show how they got from point A to point B. And that's a really intriguing um, idea that came to me really early on in the process. I was reading your uh, your interview or the the variety piece on Black Panther today, which you were quoted yeah. in. And you talked about the coarsening of the American political discourse and your direct was how that goes hand in hand with rhetoric designed to destabilize and disenfranchise black people and other populations, which is another way that it's hard to ignore the political ramifications of a Black Panther story in 2018. Uh, you know, if, if Wakanda was a real place, it'd be labeled as a shithole country. And this gives you a chance to shape how people are, are reacting and thinking about political issues. What is going to be – do you feel like there is a, a sense in which Wakanda – exemplifies that tension between isolationist country and interventionist policies? Yeah, I mean, you know, Wakanda has been isolationist in its pre-T'Challa past. And when T'Challa takes over, he decides to um, basically decloak the country, but also 
still stand apart largely from major geopolitical affairs. But there is a streak of the population that does want uh, Wakanda to be more interventionist um, and uh, that does feel like, hey, we've got all this technology and this ultra rare xenomineral metal, I should say. I don't know if it's necessarily a mineral. <laughs> um, but yeah, we've got all this stuff, all this cool shit. You know, how can we not fucking shit up out there? Mm-hmm. Um, um, that is a struggle that he has to deal with in the series. In the real world, you know, it is interesting to think about how even the major economies of the African continent don't wield the same political influence that major Western economies do. And, and the reason for that is is colonialism. You know, it's yeah. it's all the oil that Nigeria, for example, um, um, has access to only gets them but so much influence on the world stage. Right. Um, you know, there's a there's there's white supremacy at work in, in that uh, calculus. There's an element of um, lost capital and lost possibility that's also part of that calculus too. So the specter is always there in these stories. And you know, like for, for, pull out a far more basic kind of consideration is that um, you know Africa is a place that outside of the continent um, is still played with all manner of stereotypes and misunderstandings. You know, so it's easy for for Trump to say the kind of thing that he did because, you know, it's not like we have all these portrayals of, you know, the glory and complication of African cultures to lean back on. It's not like we have, you know, clear thematic ties to where African culture has changed the world, not just the black people all around the world. That's kind of more obvious, but like, you know, African culture is impacting the world in ways that don't even get talked about because there's a prevailing stereotypical understanding about the continent. So the comics and the movie have the chance to change that, hopefully more than a little, but at the very least a little. You've seen the movie? Yeah. Uh, I understand it's obviously an important one to you. Can you give me a quick spoiler-free review? It's amazing. I I mean... I have lots of obvious biases, which if you're at if you're at the twenty nine thirteen second mark at this point, you know. But I feel like it's the best Marvel movie so far. It feels fully realized in a way that um, most of the preceding ones haven't. Um, it feels like self contained, um, and it feels like the most politically pointed one. Like it's not happening in a fantasy world, in so much as there's real world cultural tensions and realities that inform this movie. And I think that's great. Um, it's, it's an amazing movie. I feel like you're going to be surprised at some of the performances, the juggling of tone. It's great. Like, I'm, I'm already going to see it two more times in the next two weeks. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that, that gets me really excited. I'm, he was my favorite character when I was a kid. And I think when I was a kid, I just liked the costume. 
And, yeah. and then it became, you know, and then you, your appreciation grows and, and has grown with some of the attention that's been paid to his character recently. And I really enjoyed the first issue of what you put together. I can't wait to see the rest of your run. So I, I, was, ex- I was excited about this and I'm excited to see where your story goes from here. Yeah. Um, issue two's out on Wednesday. So uh, you'll get your, your next dose then. No, I'll, I'll be there. I'll be looking forward to it. Thanks, Tyler. All right. Thanks a lot, Evan. Good luck with the rest of your week. I hope you make it through. Thank you. Take it easy. You too. Bye. That was Evan Narcisse. Rise of the Black Panther can be purchased at your local comic book stores, which you should be uh, supporting. Or you could go on to comicsology.com, I guess, and read it there. But in any case, you should be reading it. We're really, have any of you guys read any of Rise of the Black Panther? There's only two issues out right now. Not yet. So no shame no. if you haven't gotten to it yet. No, I haven't read it yet. But I will. I did. I did. I read it on Comixology, though. I'm sorry. <laughs> it covers a lot of ground that was yeah. uh, covered uh, a few years ago by Reginald Hudlin in his Black Panther run, which was the first time Marvel dipped their toes back into Black Panther after the Christopher Priest run. I think we all read a l- at least a little bit of the Hudlin run. What, how'd you guys feel about that one? It was pretty, um, that one established a lot of the, a lot of what you'll be seeing in the movie, Black Panther's sister, Shuri, uh, Eric Killmonger. A lot of these things came from Hudlin's imagination in his run. I loved Hudlin's run. It was funny, actually, like I had a really hard time trying to get into it when we recorded the podcast that shall not be named. Um, <laughs> like we, Very long podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I really had a hard time getting into Hudlin's run uh, a year and a half ago, just I don't know. Just something wasn't clicking. And when I actually dove into it for this run, uh, it's something just, it was hitting me in all the right spots. I don't know if it was just the hype of like the movie coming out, but man, I really, I really loved going through Hudlin's run. It was great. I like, as I was was reading it, I really wanted to know more about like who Reginald Hudlin was. And it was like, it was actually pretty fascinating to learn that like the director of uh, house party was yeah. the guy who was, writing this, <laughs> yeah. who was writing this comic book. Even knowing that, like it made the tone of the comic book, even it made it make more sense because there were some more like lighthearted uh, pieces to black Panther that like, I haven't really gotten to experience uh, through other uh, through like, I think my biggest familiarity with black Panther is uh, the Jonathan Hickman, new avengers mm-hmm. run which, which is just amazing it's incredible but there's no there's no real lightheartedness about it when it comes to black panther and t'challa's character so yeah like it was it was honestly really it was really nice to like kind of follow a black panther who had a little bit of a lighter tone who was seeking becoming black panther and like learning what it like learning what it looks like to be a king and as far as like he he needs a queen and like that ended up being like storm and that whole relationship plays out how it does but like i really i really had a lot of a lot more fun with hudland's run than i thought i was going to um and i i genuinely like i couldn't get into priest run at all like <laughs> and, and part of and part of that lies with the art like i yeah that's a, that's a hard thing to swallow uh sometimes when art just like doesn't land but yeah hudland's run i feel like if i had to give a suggestion to anybody of like where to start Hudlin's run would probably be it. Hmm. Don't agree? <laughs> no, I know. I know. Hannah, what do you think? <laughs> Hannah, do you agree? I do agree. Actually, I thought it was kind of funny because, you know, Chris just mentioned that he wasn't initially really into um, Hudlin's Black Panther when he uh, read through the first time. And I actually felt that way about Priest's uh, Black Panther when we discussed it on 
the podcast that shall not be named. I had a hard time with it. And it's not that I thought it was bad. It wasn't bad. But I do think I was distracted by the art. It was it's it did not age well. We've talked about this before. It's 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 like classically nineties terrible kind of comic art. And yeah. <laughs> tiny, tiny feet. feet. It, does really, it does have a lot of tiny feet in it. Yeah. It's where their like their legs are massively muscled and then the artist clearly can't figure out how to end them. So they just like end in these little triangles. But you thought Yes, I, I yeah. I'm like, the art is almost I, I didn't pay attention to the feet. It's yeah. hard to because it's distracting from the story. It's very distracting from the story. But and the, I think the story is pretty good. I like Christopher Priest. Christopher Priest is still doing great work in comics. I think he's currently over at DC working on Justice League. He was the first uh, black writer to be on staff at Marvel Comics. And, and what he did for Black Panther in terms of Black Panther had kind of become just another Avenger who hung out over at Avengers Mansion, despite also being the king of an African country. And no writer had really tried to deal with that or how that was possible. Priest found a way to, to integrate those two in a way that was really interesting and that really wrestled with T'Challa's African heritage. And it would made sense and, and it addressed important issues. The art did not do a lot of favors to Priest's writing, unfortunately. And, and if you're going to go back and read it, and I think you should, there are some longstanding Black Panther tropes that come from the, that writing, including Everett Ross, who is a government employee. Well, yes. Played by Martin Freeman in the movie. Apparently. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah, no, I, I did go back and I, and I reread some of it because I... You know, I remember that you and Ryan had mentioned that you really liked it. And I was like, you know, I think I just need to go give it another shot. And um, I could recognize where I was just kind of superficially put off by by it just because of the aesthetics involved. But it, it is well written. And it does. I really like how they tell the story through um, Everett Ross. I thought they did a great job. In terms of Hudlin's Black Panther run, I agree with Chris. It's a great introduction um, to the character and to Wakanda. There's like little bits of humor kind of sprinkled throughout. And I think there are things I just, I really enjoyed. Like even like some of the weapons, I, I just love. There's, uh, you know, Ulysses Claw has uh, some interesting prosthetic guns that I thought were super cool. He has this like late, like four prong laser gun attached to his arm. It doesn't get much cooler than that. Um, so <laughs> so if, if you're dazzled by that kind of thing... <laughs> amongst also just great writing um, and, and a really good uh, kind of origin. Not even, I don't know if origin stories the right way, but a good introduction to Black Panther and Wakanda. I, I would totally recommend re- um, reading Hudlin's Black Panther. It was a lot of fun. And it feels like of all the comic of between Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, Evan Narcisse, even Christopher Priest, it feels like the most traditionally superhero of any of the runs. It's a very, it very much feels like a superhero comic. It definitely doesn't delve too deep into the politics. Like I, I've only read um, some of Todd Nahasi Coates' Black Panther, but it definitely doesn't get yeah. as political as he does, as as you would expect. Um, but you know, one thing I, I kept thinking of, and this is where I'm really going to sound very nerdy, but you know, I think Wakanda to me is like this kind of like utopia. You know, you hear like um, how T'Challa and what's his father's name? T'Chaka is that how you yeah. pronounce his father's name? how they would talk about their nation when they would, you know, be in meetings with other leaders and they would want to be like, you know, trading with them, right. They want their vibranium, they want their resources. And like, they wouldn't, they simply didn't trust other people with what they had. Um, and it kind of reminded me of the elves and Lord of the Rings. Oh, interesting. Um, oh, how yeah. They're kind of like this. Yeah. Like utopian kind of group of people who are like, they, they definitely isolated. They weren't intervening. 
but they also they also weren't out there, you know, using their resources, their their scientific advantages that they had over and their technological advantages that they had over everyone to have to assert power and dominance. It, it was kind of like they were like this elevated society. And I just kept thinking about that. Yeah. I think Evan talks to Evan speaks into like uh, in the interview, he says something along the lines of like being in isolation and makes you a target. Mm-hmm. And uh, like T'Challa is the king of this incredible country uh, and he shouldn't be like separate, you know, like battling, like, you know, we shouldn't be separating ourselves away from the rest of the world. We should be helping them. And I think that that's like, I think like when I think back to Hudlin's run and like how, truly isolationist all the like previous kings were to even his father T'Chaka like it is a pretty amazing take on the character of like trying to integrate this entire like the the resources and the technology of this incredible country into the world and like how that can benefit the world as a whole so yeah I'm looking forward to just how they they really do like expand on the role Wakanda plays in the Marvel universe and it seems like that was probably predictive of where we're at right now in ways that, that they couldn't have foreseen, obviously, when they were writing it. But the idea of, of a completely isolated African nation and Marvel, it's one that has never been conquered. And it puts up even a front of being a, a third world country uh, so that other countries don't pay attention to it. But secretly, is the most technologically advanced society on the planet. And then the question and Coates' run, uh, even to an extent in, in Hudlin's run, and obviously in Christopher Priest's, is at what point does this country have to start taking some interest in other countries in the world? And what is our, the role of a society that has a lot of power, that has a lot of wealth? How does it involve itself into what's going on in other countries? How wise is that? And, and when does it say, no, we're not going to involve ourselves in it? These are very, very complicated questions for a superhero comic book. They're complicated questions for us right now. And we're obviously dealing with that in, in extremely divisive and heated ways in our own country right now. And I think it's to everybody's credit, but at the time, we'll, we have to give a lot of credit to Coates and to Evan for how head on they've taken current issues. And uh, I'm glad that Marvel's given them the freedom to explore that because th- these are very, it's very contentious to talk about these things and they are not being subtle about their metaphors. Kind of makes me think about what we talked about a little bit in Batgirls episode, just talking about how we enjoy discussing comics together. You know, it makes it more fun. And I think that to what Ryan said earlier about, and then what you said, Tyler, about um, the content of comics when it's kind of putting your best foot forward, not just, you know, for like a superhero, but for entire nations. Um, and you do talk about things on, a, on like a political scale, on a global scale, and you have to talk about it with people. And it's in a nonfiction sense. It's almost like a safe place to talk yeah. about these things and to bring up maybe conversations that you might be uncomfortable bringing up in a 100% real world context, right? You know, because it's so divisive and often leads to an argument with, you know, people who are your friends that you might not want to argue with about it. But I feel like, you know, with comics, it provides a safe kind of arena for these discussions that don't necessarily need to get so escalated because it's, it's not real, but there can be very real life scenarios in them. And so I'm, I'm glad we get to just sit here and chat about these things in a, in a comic book <laughs> podcast. You know, we could be talking about really trivial stuff like chest hair, but um, <laughs> who would ever do that? <laughs> no, but we wouldn't do that, no, but no, we're no, about that. Yeah, that's not our, no, never, not we our would brand. never talk about that. <laughs> 
ever. Yeah. Hannah would never write a blog post top five chest hair of Marvel superheroes. I feel like you're baiting me again. We're already opening up a box of work. I'm not going to get back into that one. But with that, I think we will wrap it up for this week. We're really pumped to see Black Panther. We'll be talking, giving our uh, reactions to it next time we all get together. And it will probably be a very spoilery episode. But until then, uh, appreciate you guys listening to the podcast. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to Evan Narcisse for spending some time with us. You can go pick up his issues of Rise of the Black Panther, either in your local comic book shop or on Comixology or Marvel.com. Also, I want to give a thanks to our friend Justin Mazel, who's a guy we don't know very well, but uh, he did all the artwork for the podcast. And I believe he did it for he? I don't know. Just some guy that we asked to do it. <laughs> said he would said he would do it. Betty's cute. And I want to give a thank I want to give a shout out to some guy named Ryan Ham as well, who did the music that brings out in the episode and out of the episode every time. So thank you, Ryan, wherever you are. We're thinking of you, buddy. We miss you. We love you. <laughs> And one more thank you. We want to give a shout out to CM Studios, Chad and Jesse over there do all the production on our podcast and we're grateful for them making it sound good and cutting up the stuff that was just too hot to touch. Just, just too hot for TV. Thanks everybody. We'll be back next time. I'm Tyler Huckabee. I'm Hannah Mazel. I'm Ryan Ham. I'm Chris Youngblood. No need for thanks, citizen. We'll see you next time. <laughs>